Uh, let's, uh, let's open our Bibles now. We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 25 this evening. Last week, you remember that we looked at chapter 24, and that chapter really was about a near miss for Saul, because... David, as you know, went from the, the wilderness of Maon, which is in the Judean foothills, uh, right to the west of the Dead Sea. And he went into Engedi. And if you remember last week, we looked at some photos and some videos and, and just kind of got an idea of what this Engedi looked like. But that's where David and his 400 men, um, where they had camped out and trying to escape the capture of Saul, still chasing David, still bent in his anger and his frustration, his jealousy. And so David and his men, they hide out there. And you remember that while Saul was in that cave, David, uh, and these caves could accommodate uh, several hundred men in some of them, and, and, and David and his men were in there. And David snuck up on Saul's robe that was laying in a part by itself, and he cut a piece of it off. So when Saul was done doing his business. He puts his robe back on and he goes out and David talks to him, you know, from the, from the cave and comes out. And uh, you recall that Saul seemed, on the outward, he seemed very repentant. He seemed very sorry for what he had been doing and because uh, he knew that David and his men could have easily killed him in that place. And, um, but they spared his life. And Saul was very grateful, obviously, seemed very repentant on the outward, but we know, and we'll see this next week, that Saul, it was just a temporary fancy. It wasn't anything that was long-lasting, which is generally true of somebody who is bent on anger and full of jealousy. Uh, Emotions are an amazing thing. One minute you can be calm and peaceful, and everything seems good in the world and good inside. Everything seems to be quiet, and all it just takes one little Thing that can just ignite it like a powder keg, and then you're filled with rage and anger again, and those old feelings just rise up to the surface very quickly. Anybody relate to that? <laughs> I think we all can, because we're people, and unfortunately, feelings can get the best of us, and we have to be very careful with those kinds of things. And so David, now he's, he's in Engedi, and now he's going to be leaving again to the wilderness of Maon. He's going back to a similar place where he was, the same general area, and we'll look at that. This is a fairly lengthy chapter, so normally on shorter chapters, I like to read the whole thing and kind of get it in context, but we won't do that tonight. Uh, We're just going to get into it, and I would encourage you to read it again this evening before you go to bed. It's a a really wonderful chapter, and I, I think you'll you'll find that the the star of the show, really, of this chapter is a woman by the name of Abigail. We're going to see that David marries her. She's married to this gentleman by the name of Nabal, and they couldn't be two different people. Nabal was a scoundrel, and that's what his name means. But his wife, Abigail, was a very beautiful young lady, full of understanding, very intelligent, very prudent, and her husband was the exact opposite, exact opposite. And so we're going to see uh, embedded in this, um, in this event tonight a love story beginning to unfold. And it's really quite touching, actually, to see what we're going to hear from Abigail's heart toward David. And then seeing David crack like an egg when he was so bent. And what we'll see as we get into this, what I'm talking about, but David was ready to go up to the, the, the city there in Carmel and, and kill her husband. And we'll find out why that is. That, that's a, a little bait switch to throw you. Um, but Abigail intercedes on behalf of her husband, saving his life. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful event that we'll see. Not so much for Nabal, but for Abigail and David. And so... We're going to see tonight that Abigail is going to be a type of the believer because she's so different than her husband, Nabal. She's a type of a believer, and her husband, Nabal, is a type of the flesh. Just somebody who is bent on just just a really nasty person. And have you met any nasty people in your life? Raise your hand if you've met nasty people. 
I have. You know why? I looked in the mirror this morning. I thought to myself, man, you are one nasty guy. Uh, But um, we have met people like that. So let's get into it. In verse 1, it says, Then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now, it says that Samuel died. And, And this is interesting because Samuel was one of the few allies that David had. As David was on the run from Saul, he really only had three people that he could count on. The first one, and most important, was the Lord himself. The second one was the king's son, Jonathan. And the third one was Samuel, the one who anointed Saul to be king and ultimately anointed David to be king as well. And so, but now Samuel passes from the scene, and Samuel's life was marked by one of integrity and one of obedience. He was this man who had a sterling character, one of those that the, 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 the news couldn't get a hold of any piece of him in a negative way. He was just a straight arrow from the very beginning, and he was instrumental in keeping the children of Israel in line with the word of God for their own good at a time when the country, remember um, in the time of the judges, right after the time of the judges, there was still moral decline, spiritual decline. And if it weren't for Samuel, the country probably would have went further under. But he kind of was like the lightning rod. And he was the prophet. He was the last judge and arguably, arguably the first Old Testament um, prophet, you know, with the exception of Moses, of course. But he was, um, he was a wonderful man. He developed a school of prophets in his hometown, which was very significant. And so now he passes from the scene. Now David has no other support other than Jonathan. And Jonathan and David, they met in, 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 in the chapter 23, and that was the last time that they were going to meet. So now he's just, it's just him and the Lord. And so David now, he, he, he flees from Engedi, and now he's back in, the Bible says here, the wilderness of Paran, but many of the manuscripts say that he went back to Maon, which is the wilderness of Maon, which is basically the same place that he was before he went to Engedi in the first place. And Carmel is just a little bit north, just a little bit north of Maon. So they're in the forest, him and his guys, and this is where the setting is. But I love how when it says that Samuel died, I love how the Bible can just say goodbye to a man of God in a single verse. It does right here, doesn't it? It just says, then Samuel died. <laughs> there's no fanfare. There's no, you know, summing up of his life. I mean, we've been reading about his life, but, you know, I, I, the Bible is just, he died. <laughs> and so, um, and, and I don't say that in a, um, in a way that would, that would be uh, insensitive. You know, there's no chapters extolling how great he was. Because truly, who was great in Samuel's life? It was God. It was God the Father who was really the great one in his life, right? But God also has the perspective that the saints, they simply close their eyes on this earth and they open their eyes on the next. They take their last breath here and it's their first breath with the Lord. And see, the same is true for you and I. The problem is, we, you know, God's perspective and our perspective are a little bit, or quite a bit different, actually. God looks at a man of God passing from the scene, and he's just like, he died, but he's with me. Really no change from God's perspective, except he's with him now, physically, or, you know, he's with him. But we have this hang-up with the physical, We want to preserve this physical. There's a great, great drive to stay alive. But from God's perspective, we pass, and then we open our eyes to time with him. But we don't see that perspective so much. We tend to put so much emphasis on the physical. But, you know, when we look at other men of God, other patriarchs in the Bible, the death of Adam, the Bible says in Genesis 5, verse 5, all the days of Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Abraham, Genesis 25, verse 7. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life which he lived. 127 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. 
and he was gathered to his people. The death of Jacob, and when Jacob, and this is Genesis 49:33, when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. And even Moses, only a little more fanfare with him. Moses, the servant of God, Deuteronomy 34, verse 5. He died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab. Moses was 120, uh, 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. But he died. He's done. And you notice that Samuel was, he wasn't, he wasn't preparing for retirement. He was an old man. And again, there's nothing wrong with preparing for retirement. I, I, I would encourage you to prepare because somebody's got to pay that bill. You got us faithful. He's going to help you. But we, we, we prepare, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. But are we preparing for eternity? That's the question. For all of us, are we preparing for eternity? We spend all of our life preparing for retirement, but very few people prepare for eternity. Because, see, folks, whether we believe it or not, us as believers and unbelievers, there will be an eternity awaiting you, either in the presence of Almighty God where there's pleasures forevermore or in the absence of God in death and hell and the lake of fire. There is no other way. There's two ways. And we will all end up in one of those places. And thank God if you know Jesus, you know where you're going. To me, that's one of the wonderful joys of being a believer in Jesus Christ. As I know where I'm going, and it's not because of any good thing I've done. Not because of any good thing that you've done. Simply the merit of Christ on the cross. His blood on the cross. So, we need to prepare for eternity. And Samuel, I believe, was doing that. You know, Jesus, in the Mount of Beatitudes, he says, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there, where you will, there your heart will be also. And that is true. If, I, if I'm looking forward to heaven, I, my life is going to be about preparing for eternity. Everything that I do now is going to be based on that true reality because that's more of a reality, folks, than us sitting here today. I mean, I, I really believe that. We can't see it, and therefore we don't think it's really going to happen or that it doesn't exist, but it's more real than anything. In fact, I believe everything that we see physically is a result of some spiritual entity, you know, some spiritual reality. The things, the buildings we see, the, the environment that we live in is a result of spiritual things. So lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where nobody can break in and steal. Amen? But Samuel died, David's friend, his confidant, his mentor. In, in some ways, is gone from the scenes. And it says there at the end of verse 1 that David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, which, again, is really um, Maon, we believe. And this makes sense because Nabal lived in Maon, and David was close by. And he can't watch these, this man's sheep being so far down in the south because the wilderness of Paran is about 100 miles south of the very southmost city in Israel, in Beersheba. Go about another 100 miles south, okay? That's the wilderness of Paran. Again, so there's some um, translational things here that got um, a little confused. So David fled. And from Engedi, it's just, again, just west, going into Maon and, and Carmel. So it says in verse 2 now, Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. This word Carmel literally means vineyard land or garden spot. And this is not the Carmel that you and I know when Elijah faced off with the 450 prophets of Baal. That Carmel is up in the northern part of Israel, in the, in the tribe of Asher, in that area up there. This Carmel is just a little bit south, a little bit north, actually, of the wilderness of Maon. And so this is uh, not the same place where Elijah was. 
But it's also a place where Saul, if you remember in chapter 15, he erected a monument in his name. Sounds like a pretty humble guy. What are you going to do today? I'm going to erect a monument in my name. You know, and he, he does. Filled with himself, he puts up a monument there. This is the place where it is. And notice at the verse it says, The man was very rich, and often a man's wealth was demonstrated by his livestock. The, the amount of sheep and the goats and the cattle and the servants that they had. And so that's how a man's wealth was uh, measured, really. So this man, Nabal, was a very wealthy man. And, you know, God doesn't have a problem with wealthy people. There's a misunderstanding about wealth in the church. And I think you all know that, but it, it behooves me to say it again. God doesn't have a problem with wealth. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were wealthy men. They had huge herds. They were wealthy in their days. They had a lot. But it's the attitude of the heart about those things. That's where God has a problem. That's where he has a problem. He's not concerned about our wealth, but our attitude toward it. What does it say in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10? We know this verse. For the love of money is a root a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and they've pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It is a, a root of all evil. Money is not the root. The love of money is a root of all kinds of mischievous and, and evil things. And we know that to be true. It's ironic, but... There are some people who have a problem with wealth, and they're wealthy, and there are those who strive for wealth, and they get it, and they can't handle it. It ends up destroying them. But I've known people who have been millionaires, people that I know that are millionaires, and they don't, you'd never know it by looking at them. They don't have some kind of attitude. They're not spendthrifts. They're, they're careful with their money. They're, they're, they're very different from the world's perspective. And God doesn't have a problem, you know, especially if you got it through honest gain. He doesn't have a problem with that. But what about the heart? It's always about the inside, isn't it? God never looks on the outside. He could care less about the outside. It's really what's on the inside. He's always looking at that. That's why Jesus said, you've heard that it was said that if a man commits adultery, you know, then they both shall be put to death. But he says, I tell you, but I say unto you, if a man even looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he has already committed fornication, adultery. It's all about the inside, not about the outside. So in verse 3 it says, The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail, and she was a woman of good understanding and a beautiful appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the seed or of the house of Caleb. Now this man's name, Nabal, um, the name only speaks of, uh, it not only speaks of, of the fact that, uh, of stupidity, that's literally what the word means, but it's also perversity and de moral deficiency. So this was not a good man. He probably got his wealth by ill means. He was hard and ruthless to other people. He was just a scoundrel. I mean, this is, there are people like this in the world, and it's okay to say what they, what they are. You know a fruit by its tree, or you know a tree by its fruit, Right? There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there's something wrong with his attitude, certainly, because this man was very well known to be a scoundrel, and his name even suggested. I wonder what happened when his mother bore him, and he comes out, and they, you know, they cut the umbilical cord, and the midwives are there, and they're cleaning them all up, and they put him in that nice little, same little, you know, um, you know, general hospital blanket that they, you know, multicolored thing that everybody sees in all the Facebook posts, and they hand it to her. And she's like, oh, he's so cute. I think I'll call him Nabal. <laughs> I think I'll call him stupid. I think I'll call him perverse and moral deficient. And that's actually what he turns out to be. You might want to put a reference off to his name, and I'll give it to you. It's Psalm 14. We're just going to look at the first three verses of Psalm 14. The reason why this is significant is because David, later on, he writes this psalm, and he uses this man's name. The Hebrew word for fool is Nabal, 
In fact, in the very first three verses, Psalm 14, it says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. If you've come tonight to be lifted up in self-esteem, sorry. There is none who does good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who did understand, who, who seek God, and they have all turned aside. That's the answer. They've all turned aside. They've all together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Boy, does that just drive the nail further into the coffin of our pride, doesn't it? And the sooner I come to realize that that is the truth about me, the better off I am going to be, and the better off you're going to be. If you know that within you there lies no good thing, that's a good place to start, because then you know you need a Savior. Then you know that you are in need of a physician, because if you, don't think, you're, if you think everything's fine, then you have no need of a physician. But if I know I'm a scoundrel at heart, if I know that I'm born in sin and I'm continuing in it, then I need a Savior. I need somebody to save me from where I'm going to go if he doesn't intervene. right? But that word fool is the same exact word, Nabal. Nabal. That's what it means. But Abigail, <laughs> this wonderful young lady, her name means my father is joy. And there couldn't be any more, any more opposite. And again, marriages in these days were usually done by fathers. They were prearranged marriages, probably when they were just young kids. Their parents got together and, and brought the two of them together. So she, you know, what does a good girl like that have to do with this scoundrel? Well, it's probably arranged, as most marriages were in that culture in that time. But she was just the exact opposite. She was a breath of fresh air. She was encouraging, positive, moral. She was intelligent. She was prudent, just like my wife, Kathy. Yeah. Sorry, Kath. (laughs) But she was. She was like a diamond. That's what Abigail was. And notice in verse 3, it says that he was of the house of Caleb. Remember Caleb? What a wonderful man this was. Remember when Moses sent the 12 spies and 10 of the, the spies came back and gave an evil report, but it was Joshua and Caleb that went in and says, we can take this. We can do it. God told us, let's, let's just go and get it on. And God loved those two guys. And Caleb was from the tribe of Jephunneh. He was a, of Judah. He was a faithful man. And so this man, Nabal, came from the house of Caleb And unfortunately, he didn't have the same character as Caleb. It says, verse 4, that when David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent his uh, ten young men, and David said to the young man, Go up to Carmel to Nabal and greet him in my name. Every year the shepherds would uh, shear the sheep because the sheep would just get these huge coats on them and they would have to shear them. They'd have to get those, all that wool off the sheep. It was cooler for the sheep and then they could use that, uh, the wool for clothing and other things. And so when they did this every year, it was a big deal. It was a, it was a feast. They had a big feast as they were doing this every night and they would celebrate and eat and drink. And Nabal, we'll see, gets a little too carried away. So David sends ten young men out from the wilderness to go to Nabal. And David said to them, Go up and say, Go up to Carmel to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, and peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers, your shepherds were with us. And we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we came on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand, to your servants, and to your son David. See, David was out in the fields, and they were actually protecting these shepherds. David being a shepherd himself. That was his beginning. That's, he knew very well what a shepherding was all about. And so he sees these, all these sheep and these shepherds. And David and his men were kind to them. And now remember, these guys are on the run. They need food. But did they go after the sheep and even steal one or two from Nabal? No, they didn't. In fact, they were a wall to Nabal's sheep, you know, shepherds and their sheep, protecting them from other bands of robbers and thieves, the Philistines. 
And so they were uh, uh, helping them. And David knew very well what that was all about. And so, verse 8, he says, Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we came on a feast day. And so David's basically saying, you know what? We've, we've looked out for you, Nabal, for quite a while. And all we're asking is, while you're celebrating, maybe you can throw a couple lambs our way. You know, so me and the men can eat. It's a very hospitable thing that Nabal should have offered once he heard about it. He should have helped them out. Because as you know, hospitality was a very big deal in the Middle East, still is today. But Nabal was such a scoundrel. He didn't care. There was no amount of hospitality in him whatsoever. He was content on letting David and his men, and he knew who David was. David was a pretty notorious character. He's very well known by this time. So, and we'll see here. It says in verse 9, So when David's young men came, they spake to Nabal concerning all these words in the name of David, and they waited. And then Nadab, or Nadab, Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away from their master. And shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who I do not know where they are from? And this is really a sham because he really did know. Because David, again, at this time, was very well known. So David's young men turned on their heels and they went back. And they came and they told David all these words. And this is just a slap in the face of David. I mean, think about it. You know, you're out there, and, and, and some time has gone by. This is not just like a day or two, okay? David and his men have been watching over these guys and being like a wall to other enemies. And then all David wants is one night just to be fed, you know, just some relief and the hunger. And in that culture, anybody would have said, you know, you got it. You know, you've been helpful to us. We'll give you, you know, how many nights you want. We'll set you up. But Nabal was not going to have any of it. He was just a greedy Greedy, churlish man. So David, verse 13, David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. And so every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. Again, it seems very strange that David, again, he's not quite right. He's doing a wrong thing now. We've seen David as he's been running from Saul, not quite in his right mind. You know, when he first slew uh, Goliath, David was riding high on faith, and now we see him not quite acting himself. And this is another one, another episode, another event in his life where he's just, he's not quite all there. He's not thinking it through. He's being led more by his emotions and his feelings rather than faith in God. So it seems strange to us. And he's very angry, and he's not, and it was not right what he was doing. And if he was to go through with this, it would be a dark stain on David personally, and certainly on when he became king. And David knew that he was going to be king. He didn't know the timing of the whole thing, because Saul was still alive and still trying to hunt him. So verse 14, now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we, as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. And they were a wall to us, both by night and day, all the time we were with them, keeping the sheep." So even the men themselves are praising David and his men for their uprightness. Now therefore, verse 7, Know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all of his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. And so here a servant is talking about his master, Nabal. And that was his reputation. He was a scoundrel. Have you met somebody like that? We all have. Somebody just rude. They're just rude, filthy. Literally, it's a son of Belial. Belial is a, is a term that's used, and it's an epithet of Satan. It's a nickname for Satan. He's the son of Belial. And that's what they called Nabal. 
You know, when a person refuses to listen to the counsel of anybody else, that person is in grave danger, aren't they? When you're not willing to listen to anybody else, that's a bad place to be, very bad. But to listen, to consider counsel, to be accountable is a hallmark of a truly wise person. Somebody who is wise will listen. They're teachable. They're accountable. Nabal was none of these things. In Proverbs 11, it says, Where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. In Proverbs 15, 22, it says, Without counsel, plans go awry. But in the multitude of counselors, they are established. Proverbs 24, verse 6, For by wise counsel, you will wage your own war. And in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. But Nabal was of none of that. He wouldn't listen. Are you the type of person that listens? Or are you the type of person that has to figure it out your own way? Remember when you were teenagers? Your mother and your father would tell you something and you say, well, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to go do my own thing. And then you go do your own thing and then the, the, the thing that your father told you was going to happen if you didn't listen to him actually comes to pass. And it usually does. Son, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. No, I can do it better. I'm better. I, I won't even get caught because I'm better than you, Dad. Okay, son, I'll, I'll, when I get the phone call when you're in jail, maybe I'll let you sit in there for a couple nights. Maybe that'll sober you up a little bit. Oh, you've got it, got it covered, wouldn't get caught. But that's the kind of a person who's unwilling to listen. They're not willing to obey. And such as are some of us, even Christians. Are we still stubborn? Are we still willing to listen? Are you willing to listen to somebody younger than you, filled with the Spirit of God? That's a challenge. Somebody who's less mature than you? Telling you something you know is right, but because you're older than them, you must have more experience. You must be better at it. You must be more wise than they are. Not always true. I've seen some old people, there's no wisdom at all. And I've seen a 14-year-old demonstrate greater wisdom than a 79-year-old person. It's the truth. It's unfortunate that somebody can live that long and, and still be so, such a mess. It's really a shame. Because by the time you're older, it should be, you should be the wonder of your neighborhood. Because of your kindness. But it says at the, the very bottom part of 17 there, he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. He's unable to be spoken to. He's unapproachable, unwilling to learn, very unfortunate. And usually people like that, they die bitter, angry, and lonely if they don't change. That's usually the result of it. And, you know, sometimes, you know, we need to pray for individuals like that. If you've got some in your life like that, pray for them. And sometimes you need to go right to them and tell them the truth. Tell them the hard truth. But first, you better pray. You'd better pray before you go and rebuke somebody. Or even, even if you do it nicely in love, pray to get your own heart right and then go tell them that they're a scoundrel. You can do it in a nice way, believe me. I remember those, uh, my mother, I, I, what I'm about to say here, I'm not going to recommend that anybody do, you know, don't do this, okay? Don't do this at home. Don't try this at home. But I remember um, my mother telling me a story. She, she's a retired police officer, and she works in a restaurant. And an old couple came into the restaurant one night, and he was just nasty. Just, I mean, she knew who these people were, and he was just always really nasty. And the wife was very nice and very kind, but the husband was just, he never left a tip, always very demanding, just rotten. And he spoke to her really harshly, and um, he, he, he said something to my mother. And my mother put him right in his place, you know. And, I mean, she really nailed him right to the wall. You know, he said something, and my mother says, who died and made you king? Something along that line, right? And the lady's like, <gasps> you know, because her husband is this, you know, nasty Nabal type of guy. And, 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 and he got really quiet. He got really quiet. And so, you know, again, I'm not recommending that, but sometimes we need to be assertive and, and tell people, not in that way necessarily. Sometimes we need a shot in the arm. 
we need a kind of a jolt a little bit to, for somebody lovingly to tell us, hey, you really need to think about what you're doing. And incidentally, that night after their dinner was, the lady wrote this note to my mother on the, on the bill. I'm so thankful for you. And she gave her like a really huge tip. You know, nobody, nobody's ever said anything like that to him, ever. You know, he's the one barking out the orders. Never, you know. And my mom just kind of laid him out right there. And, you know, her, you know, so anyway, we're going. We're going on. We're going on. So, <laughs> but in Matthew 7, Jesus said this. In verse 15, he said, Beware of false prophets who come in to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. And such was the case of Nabal. And you know, when you look at her, Abigail, and you contrast Nabal with Abigail, it couldn't be more night and day. You know, she was, had these fruits of the, the fruit of the Spirit happening in her life. You know, she had the love and the joy and the peace, the kindness, the patience, the faithfulness, the gentleness, the self-control, and her husband was just the opposite. Verse 18, it says, Then Abigail made haste, and she took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seas of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, loaded them on donkeys, and she said to her servants, Go on before me. See, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. She did all of this without her husband's understanding or knowledge of it. Do you remember, this reminds me of when Jacob and Esau, it's recorded for us in Genesis 32 and chapter 33, where after taking the birthright from Esau, many years go by, and finally Jacob and Esau have a meeting. And, and, and before Jacob actually meets Esau face to face, he has these waves, waves of offerings to his brother, you know, livestock and sheep and everything like this. I mean, just wave after wave, and then finally he comes to, you know, meet him himself. And things turn out really good for Jacob and Esau. They, they make up, and it's a really beautiful story. Same thing here. You know, she sends this mess of, of meat and, and provender to David, and she follows after and that's a pretty wise thing to do. You never want to be the ambassador going out before the food to a bunch of hungry guys, especially if they don't know the food's coming. Send the food first and then come afterwards. You know, when they see the Big Macs coming, they're like, oh, thank God I'm starving. Whatever you say, I'll listen to you now because I'm eating. All right? That was kind of the deal. So... But she didn't tell her husband, and there are times when we have to obey God rather than men. And I believe the Lord was putting on her heart to do this very thing because she was a woman of understanding. She was intelligent. And I believe she was being led by the Lord here because had she not intervened and interceded on behalf of her husband, who deserved to die because of his attitude, not only, would a he, not only would he have died, but all the other men who served with him or served under him, David was coming after all of them. And David was completely wrong in doing that. But Abigail interceded on their behalf. And she didn't tell Nabal what she was planning on doing because had she done that, he certainly would have refused her and even forbid her to go. And that would have ultimately led to his demise and all the men. Does that make sense? And so Abigail is the intercessor here. And so it was, verse 20, as she rode on the donkey, that she went down under the cover of the hill, and there were David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing has missed of all that belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. And he did. Nabal was a nasty man. After all that David did, there was no thanks 
Not even one meal. And that was just so unheard of. That's what incensed David so much because the hospitality thing was so ingrained in him. It was so ingrained in the culture. And when you don't see any thanksgiving but rather a, a, a shoving away and, and, and it's just like a slap in the face. David is incensed. He says, may God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. Now when Abigail, verse 23, saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey. She fell on her face before David and bowed down to the ground. She bowed down to the ground. And so she fell at his feet and she said, oh my Oh, on me, my Lord, on me let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. So she is just a really remarkable lady. She's approaching David for who he is going to be. I mean, the men in that culture, of course, they, they had a higher standing. But she knows in her heart who he's destined to be. And she bows down before him. And I believe this whole dialogue that her and David, or her and, uh, her and David have, there, there's a lot here that's really telling. She says, on me, notice that Abigail, again, interceding for her husband, her husband and all the male servants. What an amazing woman. She says, please let my Lord, verse 25, regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. She was completely unaware of this embassage that had come earlier. She was completely unaware of it. And, and, and it's very uncommon for a woman to speak this way of her husband in this culture to anyone else. But she needed to. She needed to intercede because David was bent on murdering her husband and all those guys. And so she had to like get right to business, and she did it. But it was very uncommon for a woman to do that. It was not a good thing, but she did it to save her husband's life. Now therefore, verse 26, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. She's saying, David, let your enemies be destroyed, but don't do it to this man. And again, I'm sure she's had many days where her husband treated her like a fixture. I'm sure there were many days that he treated her like some of the livestock. I'm sure there were plenty of excuses for her to just say, you know what? He deserves it. You know what? I'll even help you. <laughs> Give me a sword. Let me have the first whack, you know? I mean, she didn't do any of that. Treated poorly. Everybody hated him, but yet she stood up for him. And now, verse 27, this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. And here she is. She's very hospitable. She arranged this whole mess of food to come to them, to help them, to bless them. She alone knew what they did. Nabal did not care. So she says, please forgive the trespass of your maidservant. Please forgive? What, what, what? Why would she ask for forgiveness? Perhaps because... When that, those, that embassy or that, that embassage that had come to tell Nabal what David wanted and what he was asking, she probably felt bad that she didn't hear about that. Maybe she was too busy. Don't really know, but she says, Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord, notice this, underline this, this is really important, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. That's really significant. Underline it. Because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Abigail, perhaps through the Spirit of God, was giving an essential insight into the Davidic covenant, which was yet to be given to David. She was prophesying here. She was saying, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. Verse 28. 
there was something that the Lord was using this young woman, giving her a word of knowledge, certainly prophesying. In 2 Samuel, you might want to write off to the side here, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8 through 16, actually. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8 through 16. I'm going to read it to you because this is the Davidic covenant. This is when, after David came into the kingdom and he, he began to be king after Saul's death, God spoke to Nathan, his seer, and told Nathan to tell David the following. He says, I took you from the sheepfold. So he's, God is telling Nathan to tell David, David, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler for my people over Israel, and I have been with you wherever you have gone, and you have cut off your enemies, and I have cut off your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who were on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all of your enemies. Also the Lord tells you what he, that he will make you a house. Because this was at the time when David, when he finally gets into his kingdom later on, he's like, you know, I dwell in this beautiful house, but God is, you know, the 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 Ark of the Covenants under those you know, badger skins and this ugly-looking tent. So David's thinking, you know, we got to build God a house. And God says, don't worry about me, David, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll build you a house. And he wasn't necessarily talking about the temple, although it did include that, but his house would be his enduring throne that would endure forever, speaking way past David to a descendant of David, none other than Jesus Christ. Uh, and notice what, she, what, what, what Nathan says here, or God says to, to David in verse 12. He says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Do you think that what Abigail was saying was prophetic? You better believe it. Because God was going to tell David the very same thing years down the road. And here's this young woman being used by God, saying, David, you're going to have an enduring house. And he goes on in verse 14 here in 2 Samuel 7. He says, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the son of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And notice, here it is again, verse 16, so important. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. He repeats it again. How did Abigail know that he would have an enduring house? The Spirit of God. That's what. This young woman. And David. <laughs> all, the while she, all the while she's talking, I bet his jaw is slowly dropping. He's listening to her and he's like, mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. And pretty soon his jawbone comes unhinged and his jaw hits the ground because he's listening to her and he knows that God is speaking through this woman. Verse 29, back in our text, says, Yet a man has risen to pursue you, and certainly we all know who that is, and he's come to seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. David, you are untouchable. David, you are divinely protected by God, and what a word of encouragement from a young lady. Not only is your house going to endure forever, but God is going to protect you, David, you are bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. Doesn't that remind you of something? It's certainly reminding David of something. Can you imagine? At this point, his jaw has hit the ground. There's this beautiful young lady telling him all these things, and she even remembers when I took out Goliath, that day of faith. And David's probably comparing where he's at now compared to that day, and he's scratching his head and going, oh my, this woman is something. Can I take, can I, can I, can she be my wife now? And that's what David's thinking right about now. He's thinking, but she's married. I can't touch her. 
but his heart and his mind, his whole being is totally enthralled with Abigail. And, 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 and something begins to birth within him and her as well. Verse 30, it says, And it came to pass, when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you ruler over Israel. There it is again. She had a very good assurance and understanding that, David, you are going to be king. You're not going to die. And what an what a encouragement that was for him at this time. He was hungry. All of his guys are hungry. He's a little bit frosted. He's a little bit uh, crispy around the edges. He's running for his life. He knows that Saul's empty promises aren't going to last very long. And he's hearing from this woman all these wonderful, glorious things. And David is falling in love with her. Let this be no grief to you, nor offense to, of, of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. In other words, David, it's not worth your time to be messing with Nabal. So as his name is, so is he. Don't even get in, the, get in this guy's way. That's basically what she's saying. It's not worth your time. You don't want your reign to be stained with this incident that you're about to do. And I love what Proverbs says. In fact, I labeled this whole message this a soft answer turns away wrath. So Proverbs 15, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And this was Abigail's way of a soft answer. You notice how well she did it, too? That really takes something. That, that really takes the Spirit of God, and it takes a woman. I think there's very few guys that can, that can be led. I mean, it, it happens, don't get me wrong, but there's just something so sweet in the way she spoke to him encouraging him not to go through with it, telling him of things to come yet. David, you don't want to be here. You don't want to be messing with this. So David, verse 32, he says, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. David's eyes are bugging out of his head. He's going, this, I can't believe this is happening. And blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. And many a man, many a man has been saved, preserved, or kept from calamity or harm because of the the man had a virtuous and wise wife. Happy is the man who finds a woman like Abigail. I've got one. Happy is the man who has a woman like that, full of all these good things. Nabal owed Abigail his life. Turn with me to Proverbs 31. We're not going to read the whole thing, but we're going to read. I'm just going to read straight through Proverbs. We're going to start in verse 10 because this is exactly the way Abigail was. This was her. Proverbs 31. This sounds like her. This sounds like Abigail. Verse 10, who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, and I'm sure Nabal did. He trusted her. So he will have no lack of gain. In fact, I think Abigail was part of, her, part of the reason of his success. It's very possible. She does him good, verse 12, and not evil all the days of her life. She certainly is doing that. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good, and her lamp does not go out by night. But she stretches out her hands to the distaff, and her hand holds the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy, which she did to David and his men. She is not afraid of snow of her household, for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine and purple, fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates, unfortunately not for the right things. 
When he sits among the elders of the land, she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. And charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. And this was Abigail. This was Abigail. A virtuous woman. And again, David is totally enamored with her. A good match. So David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice, and I respected your person. And now Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was, holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry with him, for he was drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. And so it was, verse 37, in the morning, when the wine had gone out from Nabal. There he is, hung over from the night before totally unaware of what had transpired the night before, that his wife told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. He either suffered a stroke of some kind, or he had a heart attack, but whatever it was, he didn't last for long, for 10 days. It says, then it happened after about 10 days that the Lord struck Nabal. Notice it wasn't David. The Lord did it. And does that bother you a little bit? Maybe it does. But there's a line that Nabal crossed. And God has the right with life and death. And there is a line, and it's unique for every person. And there's no cookie-cutter kind of thing for Christians or non-believers, unbelievers. There's a line that when a person goes over that line, when God has had it, God has done. You know, we see that in the Scripture. But David didn't have to do it. He didn't have to take matters into his own hands. In Hebrews, it says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. I would encourage you to read Psalm 37 in its entirety, or down through verse 20, as we consider what we just looked at tonight. But God is sovereign over all of his creation. He has the right to life and death. And God would judge him for it. And we we see God intervening in instances like this all throughout the Scripture. We see it in Pharaoh. You know, how could God just make the determination to end somebody's life? He has that right. He knows what they're going to do. And in his mercy, sometimes he cuts their life short. He did it to Pharaoh. He's going to do it to Saul. David didn't kill Saul. The Philistines did it. He wouldn't put his hand to it. Herod the Great and Herod Agrippa, remember, standing with all the shiny garments and the people worshiping him like a god, and then he took the glory to himself, didn't give glory to God. And what does the Bible say? An angel of the Lord struck him, and he had worms, and they ate him from the inside out. Within days, he was dead. Or what about Ananias and Sapphira? Does God have the right to do that? The answer is yes, he does. We don't like it, but he does. Verse 39, so when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, (laughs) who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. You know, it would have been wrong for him to go kill, you know. We'll see David do that later with, you know, Bathsheba. And yet David would crack like an egg and God would forgive him. And David's in heaven. He was a murderer and adulterer, but he confessed to his sin and he never did it again. Do you notice the difference? It's not the fact that you do something really dumb like that or you do something so sinful. The main thing is that you confess it and you turn from it. And whenever you step in that again, whenever you do it again, you confess it and you, 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 you turn from it. You keep confessing and turning and asking God to give you, and you know, some sins are habitual. And you've got to keep fighting that fight and, and you always continue. And pretty soon you're going to be sick of it. 
And you're going, to be, you're going to get to the point where, like, you know what, I've really had it. And the Lord's going, I know. You've been saying this for about 100 times now so far, and you haven't really turned. And God is so gracious. He's so gracious. But God forgave David, and David is in glory. Remember that. Is your, have you done something so wicked in your past that you can't forgive yourself, but God will forgive you? Well, if God forgives you and you don't forgive yourself, then what does that make you? It makes you God. God help us. Right? If God has forgiven you, why are you still lounging around and why are you still unwilling to forgive yourself? Why are you still beating yourself up over something you did 20, 20, 15, 20 years ago? Why are you still kicking yourself, thinking that somehow you've got to atone for your own sin? It honors God when you Ask him to forgive you because you're saying you're the only way that I can be forgiven. The blood of Christ is the only way, and it is. So take, take it, and by faith, confess it. You've got nothing to lose but everything to gain, right? So the servants came to Abigail at Carmel, and they spoke to her, saying, David sent to us to you to ask you to become his wife. And I bet she's going... Oh, good. I finally got a real guy. You know, the Lord got rid of this guy, and I finally got David. David's going, yeah, I felt the same way. When I first day I saw you, my jaw hit the ground, but you're married. Oh, what a problem. And God says, oh, don't worry. <laughs> I mean, this is not the reason that God did it, but he, Nabal had what was coming to him. And the Lord is sovereign. Then she arose, bowed her face to the earth, and said, Here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. She was a true servant. And you know, we need servants today. True servants. Are you a true servant? Be willing to do anything? Scrub floors? Vacuum? Anywhere. I mean, it could be at home. Are you a servant in your own home, guys? Do you expect your wife to do everything and you just kind of throw your socks on the floor and everything and she's got to pick it all up? Do you expect her to pick it up? Do you pick up after yourself? Do you put your dishes, do you rinse them off and put them in the dishwasher? Or are you just the man of the house? I'm the man of the house. Where's my food? Where's my slippers and my pipe? That's Nabal. Right, that's Nabal. But Abigail, a true servant. Are you a true servant? So Abigail arose in haste and rode on a donkey. She, had, she was attended by five of her maidens. And she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. And David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel. I'm assuming this may have been one of the other five maidens that came with him. I don't understand. You know, they, it's hard for us to understand. You know, in God's economy in the New Testament, he, he really designed marriage to be just one man and one woman. And, it, and it's always better that way for everybody. Do you remember Hannah and Penina with um, Eli, you know, Samuel's father? Remember that? Or Elkanah? Do you think it's always good to have, you know, two or three wives? Do you understand how that could be a problem? Anybody here? I mean, honestly, even if, even if the tables were turned, okay, I'm not trying to be uh, hard on women, but, I mean, think about it, ladies. If you had, like, three or four husbands, they're all jockeying for position, what's that going to look like? It's not good. You love him more than you love me. He put his arm around. He kissed you. I saw you on the field, and you even enjoyed it. I saw you do it. No, I didn't enjoy it. I hated it. No, you're lying to me. I saw you embrace him and hug him and kiss him again, and then all of a sudden you're fighting back and forth, and you cooked it, and you burnt the pancakes, you know, and, and you're just, women are fighting, and, and he's just going, oh, Kelgon, take me away. But it wasn't God's design. One man, one woman. One man, one man. And one woman. That was God's design. And when that's working, it's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's the way it was supposed to be. Amen? Yes, indeed. So David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and so both of them were his wives. It was very customary for men of importance to have more than one wife. God didn't 
uh, forbid it. He, he, he wasn't excited about it. He allowed it, but he wasn't excited about it. Does that make sense? But the last verse, but Saul had been given Michal. Saul had given his daughter Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. You remember when, um, when David was on the run, he was originally given Saul's eldest daughter. And when he did a switcheroo on him and says, no, I'm going to give you Michal. I'll give you Michal because she's going to vex you. So I'm going to give her her. What a great dad, huh? So he gives her the, 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 the younger daughter. And then David's on the run, so he's like, well, I probably won't see David again, so I'm just going to give Michal to someone else. We're going to find out later on, and we don't have time to go there, but in 2 Samuel chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, we're going to find out that when David becomes king, he's still in his heart. He's married to Michal, and he sends for her. And by this time, she and her new husband have been together and he has one of his servants go and pull, that, pull her out of the house. And so she's willing, willing at this time. She's probably thinking, great, I, you know, King David, wow, I can go shopping every day. And so she goes and she follows David, and her husband is crying behind her. What are you taking my wife? And he, I feel bad for the guy. But David says, no, she belongs to me. She always belonged to me. She doesn't belong to you. So David now has a handful of wives with him. But again, I want to go back, and, and, and we'll end here, just, just to encourage you, you know, in this, in this chapter that we're looking at today, just, you know, when you look at Abigail, and you just see what a wonderful servant she was, that really challenges me. And you see how much even... Though her husband was not a nice man, she was kind to the saving of his life and the men around him. And then to see David, you know, just fall in love with her. And so, we're going to see next week David again on the run, on the run again from Saul. Never quite escapes his hand. So be encouraged. Be encouraged. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for this night. We thank you for this chapter, Lord. And um, thank you, Lord, that you preserve us from so many hurtful things, Lord. Just thinking of how David uh, was bent, Lord, on destruction. And, Lord, you sent this woman with just such a wonderful heart filled with prophecy, and just changing David's life, Lord. And Father, help us to be men and women, Lord, uh, servants, that we would listen, that we'd be accountable, that we'd be willing to listen, and that we wouldn't allow our emotions to rule over us, Lord, anger, fits of anger. Lord, just being led by the Spirit, Lord, and having the fruit of the Spirit govern our lives, the temperance and the patience, the self-control, all these things. And so, Father, just have your way with us today, Lord, and tonight, and bless our day tomorrow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.